songs. Tonight, trust you was able to uh, pick up a lesson study guide as we uh, just continually uh, make our way through a few of these psalms. And tonight, uh, we're going to just kind of uh, settle in here on a verse uh, from Psalm 27. So if you'd like to stand, we will read that verse and uh, <clears throat> then let you be seated. Praise the Lord. Psalm 27, we're going to read verse 11 here this evening. <clears throat> Psalm 27 and verse 11. We believe this is David. He writes and he says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Teach me thy way, O Lord, Lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Father, thank you once again for this great opportunity to share together from the word of God. Thank you for those that have tuned in, Lord, online and those that have gathered in person tonight. Bless us once again as we come to your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that our eyes can be opened, our ears can be uh, unstopped in our minds, Lord, can clearly understand what you would have us to grasp tonight. In Jesus' name, all God's children say a big amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Praise the Lord. Facts and follies about God's will. That's what our title is tonight. Facts and follies about God's will. So apart from like Psalm 23 or Psalm 91, Psalm 27 is probably one of the more popular psalms in the Bible as well. In it, the psalmist, notice on your study guide, engages in three, everybody say three, three conversations which help him balance, so to speak, the ups and downs of life. Number one, let's see what he talks about. <clears throat> he converses with himself about privileges. And that's verses 1 through 6. So he converses with himself about privileges, okay? The next conversation, he converses with the Lord about problems. How many's ever had to do that? <laughs> that's verses 7 through 12. And then finally, he converses with himself again about perseverance. And that's verses 13 and 14. Okay? So for the sake of time in our study tonight, I want us to limit the study to David's second point, uh, kind of uh, looking at his conversation with the Lord about problems. Okay? Because it's clear to see one of his concerns or one of his problematic concerns was God's direction and protection in his life. How many, uh, how many know God's direction and protection is kind of important? It really is. And it's clear to see uh, that this psalm is a cry for help, okay? Ultimately, it becomes a declaration of belief in the direction and protection that God alone provides 
his children. Notice that on your study guide. And evidently, David was in a situation. Obviously, we don't know the framework or the context in which he wrote this, but he was in a situation where he needed direction and protection. So he asked God to guide and to guard him. And David knew how intense life could get. So he sought the Lord's will. How many has ever prayed, God, your will be done? Or prayed something like, Lord, show me your will. So he seeks the Lord's will. He sees the, the gravity of the moment, the importance, because Scripture warns us, like, for example, Proverbs is 14, 12. Uh, there is a way that seems like it's the will of God, right? But how many know it can lead to disaster and destruction? And how many know that's true spiritually and physically or naturally? In this case, David's prayer covers both aspects. And while it was not uncommon for him to pray for guidance and pray for wisdom, here David is praying for a future that would be free from literal traps, ambushes, life-threatening, life-altering surprises. And if David had relied on his own military competence and craftiness, he would have risked damage and perhaps even destruction because how many realize David had a lot of enemies and they were waiting to pounce on him? Yeah. Yeah. And however, he chose, though, to rely on the Lord to guide and to guard him into and along the correct path. Okay, so as Pentecostal believers, we, we live in a culture, I, I think, and I think it's easy to see in the uh, media, that is increasingly becoming more and more hostile to Christ, to his followers. That's why following David's example, embracing God's, uh, embracing God as our direction and protection, folks, that's that's a necessity these days. Yeah. There is not a day that goes by that we don't need God's direction and God's protection. You agree? Because on this topic of God's direction and protection, I, I just got to thinking. You know, have you ever? Have you ever wished you could just sit down and have lunch with the Lord? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, suppose you had 45 uninterrupted minutes with the Son of God. And you could ask Him any question on your mind. What would you ask? I have a feeling that many of us would ask questions about his will for our lives. Lord, am I doing what you want me to do at this season in my life? If I'm not, what do I need to do? What, what can I fix it here? I, you know, uh, and that's important to us because I can't speak for you, but I know, I know for myself I don't want to come to the close of my life and find out that I have wasted even a small portion 
of my life on things that were not part of God's will for me. Right? All of us have moments when we want to hear God's voice. All of us have moments when we want to receive some definite sign regarding a, maybe it's a relationship or a business decision or a career choice or a major expenditure or a ministry matter. Because how many know our choices matter? We make our decisions and then our decisions turn around and make us. So we face so many questions, you know, from young people, uh, should I get married? And if the answer is yes, then should I marry Joe or Jake or Susan or Sally? Should I go to Bible college? If so, which one? I've been offered a new job. It's a good opportunity, but I, I like my current job. Should I take the new job? Should I stay where I'm at? On and on and on. Uh, is God calling me to the ministry? How can I know? How can I be sure? Three ministry doors have opened to me. How do I know which one to choose? You see, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, if we were greeted by a chorus of angels <laughs> chanting the answer to our questions about God's will. Help us plan our next day's agenda. How about receiving a special letter delivered from heaven that chronicled exactly what we should do? You know, that would sure make it a lot easier. But how many know it doesn't happen that way? Most of the time we research, we study, we, we narrow the options, we talk it over with trusted friends, we pray about it, we wait on the Lord, and then we make our decision and hope for the best. So, in dealing with this topic of knowing God's will and finding God's will and his uh, protection and guidance, I want us to begin with this statement I have on your uh, study guide. God wants us to know his will more than we want to know it. That's the truth. That's a factual statement. So he takes some of the responsibility to see that we discover his will. Notice this on your study guide. Knowing God's will is God's responsibility, not just ours. Now I want you to think that. Think about that. Let it sink in to your minds for a moment because you may not have heard it put that way before. But I want to share I want to share what that means. It means number 1 he can put us exactly where he wants us to be. It goes on to be number 2 he can arrange all the details years in advance. Hmm? Number 3 he can open doors that seem shut tightly. Number four, he can remove any hurdle or obstacle that, that stands in our way. Oh, aren't you thankful for that? Number five, he can take our choices and fit them into his plan so that we end up at the right place at the right time. 
Imagine that. Number six, he can even take our mistakes and bring good out of them. Somebody ought to really thank him right there. Number seven, he can take tragedy and use it for our good and his glory. The only thing he requires, notice this, is a willing heart. He just needs us to cooperate with him. That doesn't mean we won't have to make decisions and pray and have wisdom and use discernment, but it does take the pressure off because it means we can trust God to take our decisions and use them to accomplish his will for our life. A common question we believers ask from time to time is, what happened, Lord? We seek... Uh, and we set out on a new job and we work hard for it. We go through the interview process. We do our very best. And in our heart, we believe it's the job God wants us to have. But then all of a sudden, somebody else gets that job. And we say, Lord, I thought I was doing your will. Or perhaps we get the job and we say, oh, thank you, Lord. But then six months later, somebody say six months later. We get fired. And we say, what happened, Lord? Or we think, if only um, we could move to Florida, we'd be happy. So we move to Florida, believing it to be the will of God. But when we get there, guess what? We're still not happy. And we say, Lord, did we make a mistake? Because, you know, deep in our hearts, we know God has a calling. He has a plan for our lives. We don't debate that. It's not a theological issue with us. We know that we were put on this earth for a purpose. We weren't put here to stumble around in darkness. That's the way life feels sometimes. But one key truth that we often overlook, notice on your study guide, is this. God's will is a journey. Everybody say journey. God's will is a journey, not a destination. And along the way, we will sometimes be quite confused. Sometimes we will be flat out wrong about what God really wants from us. But the bottom line is seeking what God's will is. And so this probably is just a part one. Next Wednesday, Lord Terry's, we're probably going to delve into some practical ways of finding the will of God. There's when you're searching for the will of God and, and more of the role of the Holy Spirit in spirit-filled believers' lives in this aspect because all of that, is, this is a very huge topic. One of the most, uh, most asked questions that I get is regarding the will of God. And so, but the fact is, if we're willing to follow God, he will lead us, okay? There's nothing controversial about that. The problem, though, comes at the level of practical application. 
We know God guides his children, but how does that divine guidance work out in the, what you would call the nitty-gritty details? Right? Does that make sense? Because at precisely this point, we need to be very clear in our thinking. And there's, there's so much misinformation, so much bad teaching, so much faulty theology when we come to the how-to of God's guidance. Right? I know of one lady, she was praying about taking a missions trip or becoming a missionary, rather, and, and to a foreign country. And she said she had been praying and praying and she went to sleep and she woke up and the alarm clock said 747. She said, that's the jet I would be taking. <laughs> so she said, that must be the will. I don't know about you, but I'm going to want a little more than that. Hello. Because as a result of all this misinformation, many Christians continually make the wrong turn. They go down dead-end streets. They end up in spiritual cul-de-sacs doing circles. You don't want that. Huh? Because it all is because they don't understand what God has said about his will and how he will guide his children. So in order to help us understand the biblical perspective on this, I want us to look at four wrong ideas about God's guidance. And uh, we'll try to work out some biblical answers for each of them because each of these are myths that are very popular these days and really can be devastating. Myth number one, God wants me to know the future. Now, I listed this first because it is the biggest mistake that Christians make oftentimes in regard to the will of God. It is the mistake of assuming the end from the beginning. Because God has led us one step in a particular direction, we assume that the end result will be guaranteed. We start down a road, and because we're going a certain direction, we think the destination is certain. Now, let's be clear at this point. It is rarely God's will for us to know our personal future. Now, I know you wish you could say the other. I, I could have told you something different. But Psalm 119.05 paints a clear picture of how we discover the will of God when he said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. The picture here is not a blazing spotlight that illuminates an entire city block. Right? It is a picture of a man who is in total darkness walking along a dangerous trail. No visible stars or moon in the sky that night. Darkness surround him, clings to him basically. His only light comes from the lantern in his hand. And as he holds the lantern, it illuminates the step right in front of him. Then when he takes that step, it illuminates forward one more step and so forth. And the light is not bright enough to illuminate ten steps ahead, right? Just one or two. Truth is, we want to know the future, at least we think we do. We want to know what's going to happen next year so we can be ready in advance. All right? 
But God declines to play that game with us, church. Deuteronomy 29, 29, this says the secret things belong to the Lord, of our, Lord our God. Does he know what's going to happen tomorrow? Absolutely he does, but he's not telling anyone else about it. Now, the way we ask it is, does God have a blueprint for our life? I believe he does. But I don't know any way we can get a hard copy. Hmm? Question, suppose God were to offer you, okay? Brother Timmy, how about this? Can I use you for a minute? Would, suppose God offer you this folder. And it has the details of your life and your loved ones, let's say, for the next 10 years. Now, your impulse would probably be, yeah, I'll take it. That's impulse. But suppose I add this provision, you can't change anything you find in that folder. Would you still take it? Well, I can tell you what I'd do. I would run the other direction. Why? Why would you do that? Because life is better lived one day at a time. Right? Is there a heavenly blueprint that details that we are what we're supposed to be doing right now? I believe the answer to that question would be yes. But the only part of it we can see arrives each morning in the form of a 24 brand new hour day freshly delivered by the United Overnight Angel Express. Huh? Please don't miss this point. God wants to teach us to trust him step by step. Right? Step by step. God reveals, notice on your study guide, God reveals his will one step at a time. So we will trust him moment by moment. Okay? So, that's the correction to myth number one. Myth number two. God wants us to have 100% certainty before we make any decision. Some folks believe they got to have 100% certainty of God's will before they make any decision. And man, it'd be awesome if you could. I mean, like if you're facing a life-changing decision, a potential marriage, a cross-country move, a, a, a career change, or whether or not to begin chemotherapy, Yes, we'd like to know in advance, beyond any doubt, that we're, what we're doing is what God wants us to do. Yeah, I, I understand that desire because I've had it myself. Right? But folks, unfortunately, that doesn't work. Seldom works. If it did, we could lock our faith and our trust in storage, throw away the key, and forget about it. Because the issues with this mythical point of view is that sometimes we think we know God's will with 100% certainty only to find out later we were badly and sadly mistaken. Right? Secondly, the other problem with it uh, is that in our search for certainty about God's will, we end up paralyzed by the inability to make up our minds. 
We recognize that some decisions are so important, we don't want to leave them up to chance, so uh, we don't do anything. Like the popular saying is, when in doubt, don't. If we're not sure about the new job, don't take it. If we're not sure about that move, then don't, you know, don't say yes. We don't make any decision with less than total certainty. And so, but that's not what living our lives by faith looks like. Sometimes we do act and make the move, and it doesn't turn out like we had envisioned, and we can start to second-guess our move. I'm, I'm sure some great people, how many know great people in the Bible felt that tension? I'm thinking, I'm reminded of Acts 16. The Apostle Paul, oh, he's, he's one of my heroes. How about you? The Apostle Paul and his team left Troas. They sail across the Aegean Sea in response to the vision of the man. You remember the vision of the man from Macedonia? Come over. Help us. But guess what? When they get there, there's no man. It's a woman. Her name's Lydia. Uh, what about the man in the vision, Lord? Nowhere to be found. Now, couldn't God have just as easily given Paul a vision of a woman saying, come over to Macedonia and help us? Certainly would have been more reassuring. Oh, she's the one. Yes. Right? Come on, that's how we work. Later on, Paul and Silas is arrested, stripped, they're beaten, they're thrown in jail. You know the story. That night, an earthquake comes, and they lead the jailer to Christ. They baptize him and his whole family. Next morning, Paul and Silas are released. They're escorted out of the city by the town leaders, who were probably glad to see him go. A strange story. In many ways, it appears that Paul failed in Philippi. After all, he it seemed to he was in trouble almost from the very moment he arrived. Where's the great church that he came to establish? Listen, folks, but from God's point of view, Paul did exactly what he should have done. All right? He followed God's leading. God gave him more light. Paul takes another step and waits for further developments. Step by step, through twists and turns and unexpected means, Paul did what God wanted him to do, even though it wasn't what he expected to do when he arrived in town. Newsflash, notice on your study guide, the outcome does not retroactively affect whether it was God's will. Hello. You might need to think about that. Because doing God's will means taking the next step, whatever it is, without a definite promise about an end result. Many times we won't have 100% certainty, church. But when the moment comes to decide, we must make the best decision we can, trusting God for the rest and the results. 
Sometimes we know more, sometimes less. But living by faith means taking the next step anyway. That makes sense? Okay, okay. Myth number three. God's highest goal is our personal happiness. <laughs> yes, God wants us happy. That's a false idea. Folks believe that their happiness is God's supreme goal for them. And naturally, it sounds good, doesn't it? Hello. God wants me happy. God wants me fulfilled. God wants me to be successful. That thinking has been used to justify all kinds of bizarre and even evil actions. Yeah. Some Christian men. Pastor, it's God's will that I should divorce my wife and marry this other woman that I met on this dating app because we're in love and God wants me happy. Hmm. The correct theological term for that is baloney. <laughs> huh? If our personal happiness is not God's highest goal for us, then what is God's will for our life? It is God's will for us to be holy. Hmm? It is God's will for us to be like Christ. It is God's will for us to be in a place of maximum usefulness to the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, is it, plainly states, it is God's will that we be sanctified. Sanctified means made holy. Yeah. It refers to the lifelong process whereby God shapes us through a multitude of experiences, both positive and negative, until he shapes us into the image of Christ. And here's the clincher. He uses the very worst things that happen to us in order to accomplish his divine purposes in us. That's why Romans 8, 29, God predestined us to be conformed to the image the likeness of his son. That is the will of God for our life. He wants to, us to become like Christ. Whatever makes us like Christ is good. Whatever doesn't make us like Christ is bad. Is that simple enough? God's fully committed to shaping our life day by day into the image of Christ. How many recognize the name Corey Ten Boom? During World War II, she was taken from her home there in Holland, taken to a prison camp, and later to Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp there in Germany. There and her sister Betsy were imprisoned, and her sister Betsy eventually died. Corey was released by a Nazi clerical mistake just before the end of the war. In her book called Tramp for the Lord, written near the end of her life, she, she just kind of looks back and she reflects on the, the leading of God. And she, 
says this, and I quote, looking back across the years of my life, I can see the working of a divine pattern, which is the way of God with his children. She says, when I was in a prison camp in Holland during the war, I often prayed, quote, Lord, never let the enemy put me in a German concentration camp. She said, God answered no to that prayer. But yet in the German camp, with all of its horror, she said, I found many prisoners who had never heard of Christ. And if God had not used my sister Betsy and me to bring them to him, they would have never heard of him. Many died or were killed, but many died with the name of Jesus on their lips. They were well worth all of our suffering. End of quote. See, somebody said faith is, is like the radar which sees through the fog. The reality of things at a distance that the human eye cannot see. How could going to a prison camp be the will of God? Hmm? Well, it can't be the will of God if God's will is that we should always be happy and comfortable. Yet going to the prison camp can be the will of God for us if it makes us more like Christ and gives us opportunities to share the love of Christ to people that would have never heard otherwise. Does that make sense? That's the biblical perspective. Will God's plan for you and me always bring immediate worldly wealth and success? <laughs> Boy, it'd be good if it did. God's plan, though, will always bring peace. It will always bring fulfillment. Come on, folks. Our duty is to follow him wherever he leads us. And when we do that, we find that, that peace, that fulfillment, that joy, because the path of duty leads to a joy that this world cannot match or even explain. All right, so with that, we come to the final myth here, and I'm going to close. Myth number four. God makes his will hard to find. And many people struggle unnecessarily in this area. Perhaps they are seeking 100% certainty or maybe they're seeking some kind of message from God like a postcard that reads, Dear Tim, buy the red Ford. <laughs> Sign God. Yeah. The... Or maybe they fear that one Sunday night while the choir sings, God is going to reveal his will and somehow they're going to miss it. You see, they worry that they, sometimes they worry that they've sinned too much and have blown their only chance to do God's will. To all these things, God says two words, trust me. Say it with me, trust me. God wants us to know his will more than we want to know it. God is more committed to showing us his will than we are to discovering it. 
He takes full responsibility for getting us from here to there, step by step. And he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And he won't. He said in Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. How many knows? And he will. He also promised in Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And he is. So we often think that God's will is hard to find, but the biblical perspective is rather quite different. God will reveal his will to anyone who's willing to do it. That leads me to the final thought. God ordinarily will not show us his will in order for us to just consider it. He's not going to show his will ordinarily. Now, there's always exceptions to the rule. Jonah being one of those. But he most likely won't show us his will so we can say, okay, God, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Okay, Lord, how about a plan B? Notice on your study guide, he will show us his will when he knows we are willing to do it. The best thing we can do as we pursue God's will is to get to know the character of God. The old hymn that's, you remember that old hymn called, Workmen of God Do Not Lose Heart. It opens like this, Workmen of God, O lose not heart, but learn what God is like. That's good. Why should we learn what God is like? Because nothing will sustain the child of God in hard times like knowing God's character. And as the hymn and life itself makes clear, we don't learn what God is like by just going to seminary. We don't learn what God is like just by memorizing the attributes of God. We learn what God is like in the darkness of the night. When we feel overwhelmed and burdened and filled with fear and uncertainty. Hmm? And ironically, we learn that when we feel almost alone, we discover, no, God is with us. He's the closest to us. So, study the character of God. Learn his holiness. Rejoice in his mercy. Ponder his patience. Consider his ways. Meditate on his goodness. Remind yourself of his justice. Rest in his faithfulness. Linger at the foot of the cross. Memorize his promises. Pray the Psalms back to him. Testify of his goodness. Declare his glory. Defend his honor. Be still and know that he is God. Nothing matters more than that. say the whole purpose of our earthly journey is for us to get to know God and what he's like. As I ponder my own personal future, I, I see some things clearly and then there's others that's a mystery to me. 
that way for all of us. But I remember what Job said. He knoweth the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows the way that I take even when I don't know. He knows the way we take even when we can't see it clearly. He knows the way we take even when we get lost along the way. Right? Walking with Christ is a journey whose destination lies somewhere beyond the horizon. And even when we think we've arrived, we haven't. And even when we think, aha, we've made it at last, life suddenly changes and we come to a sharp bend in the road. And then we take a step back and say, hmm, nope, didn't have it figured out at that time either. But praise God, the journey itself ought to be enjoyed because we know that in the end, Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Somebody said we just got to lean on him. You remember that old course by John Stallings? Actually, I think it's more than a course, Learning to Lean. Sad, brokenhearted, at the altar I knelt. I found peace that was so serene. And all that he asks is a childlike trust and a heart that's learning to lean. I might sing that, dear. Yeah, she's giving me that look. The course says learning to lean, learning to lean, learning to lean on Jesus, finding more power than I've ever dreamed. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. See, this, this leaning business hits pretty close to home for me because there's plenty of times I find myself leaning on this thing or on that person hmm, instead of the Lord. But I've also found that when I, when I learn to lean on other things in my life, God will systematically and painfully remove every crutch I have. And he'll bring me to the place where I'm leaning on him and him alone. That's where he plans to bring all of us. So in closing tonight, I, I want us to sing that chorus, learning to lean, lean on Jesus. Let's stand together. Maybe, maybe in prayer tonight you can tell Tell God you're truly leaning on him for direction and protection. That's what Psalm 27 says. Learning to lean.